SEC fans, welcome to the Saturday Down South podcast. Comedy from the iHeartMedia studio, WDAE in Tampa, Florida, 620 AM and 95.3 FM. My name is John Christ, senior writer for Saturday Down South, and his name is Connor O'Gara, national columnist for Saturday Down South. You can follow me on Twitter at SaturdayJC, and be sure to follow him as well at CJ O'Gara. Connor, this was supposed to be a little bit of a snoozer weekend. You know, no ranked teams playing each other, but as college football has shown us over the years, that's where we tend to get the most beautiful chaos. I think we should just reverse our thinking. When there's a match, when there's no matchup of ranked teams, I think we should just automatically assume, yeah, we're going to have four upsets in the top ten. Something like that. Let's just kind of keep that mindset moving forward. It seems automatic at this point. If you're listening to the Saturday Down South podcast, then you know that the South loves football, but you know that the South loves even more Crystal. That's right, Crystal, home of the classic Crystal Burger, ready to hook you up for your tailgate this season. The Crystal, the one you grew up with, the one you loved in college way past midnight. Right now, it's only 79 cents all day, every day, as many as you want, 79 cents a pop. And because no tailgate is complete without chicken wings, Crystal has you covered there as well. All wings, any wings, 49 cents each, Saturdays and Sundays, whether you want boneless or the traditional bone-in, buffalo sauce, barbecue sauce, any wing, any flavor, 49 cents each all weekend long. Best of all, Crystal is taking care of Saturday Down South podcast listeners. Text SDS. To 37793 right now, and you're going to get two free crystals. That's SDS to 37793 via text message. Free crystals, 79 cent crystals, 49 cent wings. I guarantee if you show up to your tailgate with a steamer pack full of crystals, you're going to be voted MVP. Stop by your local crystal today. Connor, we're about halfway through the slate at this point. Alabama and Georgia, clearly the best teams in the West and East, respectively. But as for everybody else, it's it's really getting difficult to get a read on just about anybody. Go figure. Last week we talked about how the SEC has three legitimate uh, contenders, and then Auburn pretty much falls on its face in the second half at LSU. And we're suddenly talking about the SEC just having two elite contenders and Auburn is kind of uh, looking like a question mark right now. I think that's a, a fair thing to say after you blow a 20 to nothing lead like that. Sorry, lost the mic there. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what happened in that game. 17 minutes in, it's 20 to nothing Auburn and absolutely everything going their way. Carryon Johnson is just jump cutting all over the place and getting seven, eight, nine yards a pop. Jarrett Stidham is making a couple of big plays through the passing game. The defense looked just terrifying and suffocating. The Bayou Bengals could do nothing correct on the offensive side of the ball. And then things just changed. It seems like the entire game just changed when Matt Canada finally hit one of those jet sweeps. He got 70 yards out of Russell Gage. It leads to a touchdown. And then LSU has some life. And from that moment on, Everything that was working for Auburn stopped working. And all the things that LSU couldn't do, suddenly they could. I don't know exactly what happened there. It was kind of a bizarre game to watch. I've been saying it and writing it the last couple of days. I don't think Auburn lost that game. I think LSU won it. They just really had a fantastic performance down the stretch. It's not like they got a bunch of gift turnovers. It's not like Auburn committed a dozen penalties. It wasn't that kind of game. Auburn just stopped making plays, and LSU made a bunch of them. LSU just cranked it up a notch, I think, speed-wise. I, I don't know what it was, if it was a Coach O, little pep talk, or, or whatever it was, but LSU played at a different speed after that first quarter, I thought. And Auburn just kind of looked content to um, keep things conservative, maybe you know, didn't take as many shots downfield as I thought they could have, and it showed. I mean, LSU just got after it. I mean, in the running game, it wasn't like – you know, they, they dominated and, and started breaking off, you know, 20, 30 yards. I mean, Gage got the long play on the jet sweep, but, I mean, you're looking at Darius Geis, and, you know, the body of work was what they needed from him, but, I mean, he only had 20 carries for 71 yards. It wasn't like he started ripping off all these big plays. And now his longest you know, run was 15 was, yards. Right, yeah. I mean, Danny Etling was what he was. I mean, it wasn't like he was, 
you know, marching them downfield and making, you know, all these perfect throws. LSU just kind of did exactly what we thought LSU could do at its best this year. That that second half performance was what we thought LSU could be if they were going to be a top 15 team this year, if that makes sense. That was LSU at its best. If LSU is going to be, you know, a contender moving forward, you got to think they're going to just try and replicate exactly what they did in the second half because it looked awfully good against a really solid Auburn defense. Yeah, absolutely. But my only thing about watching that from an LSU perspective was they seemed so dependent on a couple of guys to make some plays. And that's different from the elite teams in the SEC right now, specifically Alabama and Georgia and even Auburn to an extent. But if you watch this LSU offense, Geis was basically shut down for large portions of this game. Again, no run longer than 15 yards. But they're just begging for DJ Chark to find a way to make a play, and he made a bunch of them. They're begging for Russell Gage to make a play or two, and he did. He delivered. But they didn't have any other receivers they could rely on, no other running backs who could rip off a run. Danny Etling is Danny Etling. We've said that a 100 times before, although I do think he played well. Then on the defensive side of the ball, Devin White is seemingly making every single play because – He's apparently surpassed Arden Key as their best player on that side of the ball. I don't see the depth that should be there for a team that's recruited as well as it has over the years for LSU, but you can't fault them that much. It really was, this was every opportunity just to go in the tank and start questioning what you're doing. Why did we elevate a rah-rah defensive line coach to one of the best jobs in America? Every opportunity was there to mail it in. But whatever happened on that sideline, in that locker room, it worked because that was a different team the last 43 minutes or so. And I think credit goes to the coaching staff big time for, uh, A, making the adjustments. We talked about, you know, Matt Canada being able to to get something going with that jet sweep and the things that that opened up. And Dave Aranda just – defensively, I mean, kind of took away exactly what Auburn wanted to do. I mean, Kerrion Johnson couldn't really get going in the second half. Stidham had his problems and, you know, pretty much shut down Auburn in every possible way in the second half. And, you know, Coach O obviously plays a part in that. He's the one that's kind of getting the troops rallied and ready to go. But, I mean, from a schematic standpoint, you've got to be happy with what with what LSU was able to do. I mean, did LSU kind of play out of its mind, so to speak, in that second half? I mean, maybe, but, you know, it's a game of adjustments, and clearly LSU made the better adjustments on both sides of the ball. Oh, there's no question about that. And if there's one thing you want to fault Auburn, it seemed like Auburn was really sitting on a lead. They were up 20 to nothing, seemed to have everything going right. But from you know the middle of the second quarter on, Gus Malzahn and company seemed a little bit content with the lead. All of a sudden, very, very predictable on offense. Basically, first and second down, it was, okay, here's on Johnson, whether it's read option stuff or it's Wildcat stuff. Let's see if he can shimmy shake between the tackles and move the sticks a little bit. And if it happens to be third down, we're just going to chuck it downfield with Stidham because he has this huge arm. There wasn't a whole lot of intermediate passing game. I didn't see a screen game being used very much. It wasn't particularly creative in the passing game. And I felt like Auburn got a little bit big for its britches, sort of assuming that this LSU team couldn't come back and win, didn't have the horses offensively, didn't have a good enough quarterback, maybe the crowd was checked out a little bit. So that's the one fault I can give for Auburn. Again, they didn't put the ball on the deck. They didn't have a bunch of stupid penalties. Yes, they allowed a punt return for a touchdown, but I'm not calling that a gaffe on special teams necessarily. That was just a fantastic play by DJ Chark, who knows how to deliver a big play in the open field. So that's my one complaint with Auburn. I think that instead of putting the foot on the throat and going for the kill, which is what we've seen from Alabama, what we've seen from Georgia through seven games, Auburn got a little bit content, and I think that came back to bite him in the end. Just very predictable. You're right. I mean, we keep coming back to that point. Everybody in the stadium, it felt like, knew what Auburn was going to do in each exact spot. And if everybody in the stadium knows... The defense and the defensive coordinator probably have a pretty good idea, too. And it just seemed like for the entire second half, LSU was one step ahead. And, you know, if you're going to be an elite team, you want to compete for an SEC championship, you want to get to the college football playoff, you just can't have that. You can't have that in those moments, especially when you're up big on the road like that. You've got to be able to really take a crowd out of it. And Auburn wasn't able to do that. And part of that is going to come back to the coaching. Part of that is going to come back to Stidham, of course. 
and you know part of it you know goes to LSU I think you know we're, we're talking about a, a a really impressive comeback something that we didn't think LSU was capable of but of course the big picture takeaway in my opinion from this was Auburn looking again looking weak against a a solid opponent and not really being able to handle um, handle the heat on the road and handle the team speed that uh, the offense had to deal with I mean Sillam was just uh, held in check, and there's there's nothing else you can say about a, a guy who completes nine of twenty six passes like that. You just can't have that from your quarterback, especially a guy in Gus Malzahn's system who has so much pressure on him to deliver. Um, just all around, I mean, just a disappointing performance. Yeah, the irony here is that usually the team we complain about being bland and being predictable, and the whole stadium knows what's coming is LSU. That's exactly what the complaints were the last couple of years for Les Miles. And even last year with year one for Coach O was that everybody knows what's coming. You're going to run your power pitch first and second down between the tackles, try to move the chains, and then do something conservative and easy in first couple pages of the playbook in the passing game. But that's what happened with Auburn. So, again, very ironic how that shook out. But this is the SEC, and it's a week-to-week league. All of a sudden now the hot seat conversation is going to Gus Malzahn, which is incredible. A week ago, he's got potentially a college football playoff caliber team. He's ranked in the top 10. He's found his quarterback. Carryon Johnson is getting healthier and looking like a tremendous, tremendous running back. A defense playing as well as it has probably since that 2010 team that won a national title with Cam Newton and all those guys. And now he's on the hot seat all over again. And the talk on the planes is... It's five years now. He's maxed out. This is going to be another four-loss team. That's not good enough when you have to compete in-state with the Roll Tide types. How do you judge the hot seat situation for Malzahn, which absolutely unequivocally wasn't even a topic of conversation seven days ago? And I, I said a month ago that I thought that things could turn south in a hurry for Gus Malzahn, even though you know they played, they kept it within one possession against Clemson, and everybody wanted to talk about that. But I said going into the Missouri game that things could really spiral out of control for Malzahn, and I didn't mean that as like, okay, they're going to all of a sudden lose six games and they're just going to completely fall apart. I meant that from a standpoint of expectations were extremely high for Auburn this year. This was going to be the year that they were going to compete with Alabama and maybe win the division, get to the SEC championship. Of course, it's a really high bar to set for any program, but those that was reality for Auburn. So. You're looking at a situation where, okay, let's say Auburn wins, you know, eight games again. Let's say, you know, we're still talking about a team that's maybe hovering around the top 25 or so, doesn't compete for a division title, loses, loses, you know, uh, the Iron Bowl again, and we're we're looking at a, a scenario in which Auburn really doesn't have those big time wins. And you're five of Gus Malzahn, and you're just kind of left wondering, where, where are we going here? I mean, what, what's are we really an elite program? Are we capable of? of competing for a division year in, year out if we we're just stuck on that, that eight win mark. So, you know, I saw, you know, the matchups that, that Auburn still had on the schedule and, you know, they still have Georgia. They still have Alabama. And that's you know, you gotta win both of those games obviously if you want to make it to an SEC championship. But I think right now that that that's a tall ask for this team to do because I just don't think that they're on that same level as Georgia and Alabama the way that maybe we thought last week. They just have too many weaknesses, and we've seen them absolutely exposed against Clemson and against LSU. So let me play devil's advocate here and fast forward, and let's just crystal ball it and say, okay, it's 8-4 and four and another ho-hum bowl game for Auburn. Remember, the Tigers went to the Sugar Bowl last year 8-4, and four, but that was because the rest of the SEC didn't have a qualified candidate. That's not going to happen this year. You're going to end up in a much lower-profile bowl like the Gator Bowl or something like that, or whatever called in that game in Jacksonville these days. But... Okay, you lose four games, but you lose Clemson, which will probably finish in the top five and maybe go back to the college football playoff. You lose to Alabama, best team in the country, might go undefeated and to the college football playoff for the fourth year in a row. You might lose to Georgia, which is bigger and badder than ever, at least the last couple of years, and another college football playoff contender. Those are three top five losses right there. And the fourth one is at LSU. Death Valley is never an easy place to play. Uh, so those are four pretty justifiable losses. Yes, you're Auburn and you're supposed to be an elite program and you need to win some of these games, but there's not an egregious loss in there. There isn't Troy at home like Ed Ordron has to worry about. There isn't a South Alabama at home like Dan Mullen had to worry about a year ago. 
none of these losses are just crazy red flags where you have to say, Gus, you got to go. But at the same point, that eight and four hurdle, you got to jump it. And this is an, an Auburn team for one reason or another, the last decade or so, either they are really, really good or really, really poor, not living up to expectations. Not a whole lot of consistency. But you know, I, I always ask the same question. You know, if you're going to get rid of Gus Malzahn, you got to find somebody who's going to be better. Who's going to be that guy? Yeah, I, I don't know, and I don't have an answer necessarily for that right now. But you know, I, I could totally justify Auburn fans being a little bit frustrated if this season does end up with eight wins. I thought they had the right pieces in place to maybe get over that uh, that hump. I thought it was going to take a little bit with with, with Stidham, and I feel, I still think that it can take. They, they can come into their own a little bit you know, down the stretch. But, you know, let's say they are sitting at eight wins. You know, you're looking at a team that hasn't finished in the top 20 since that national championship in 2013. And, you know, that's, that's a tough thing to stomach because, you know, you're supposed to compete year in, year out at Auburn, simple as that. I mean, yeah, you're not necessarily expected to trade. I, I can't, you know, I can't sit here and say that Auburn should be going back and forth trading division titles with Alabama. To me, that's... Those expectations are too high with the Alabama, with the level that Alabama's at right now. But I mean, I, I, I'd be sort of frustrated. I mean, there's a very good chance this year that Auburn's best win is at home against Mississippi State. That's it. I mean, that's it for a team that had expectations of finishing inside the top ten this year. Like that, that's really the best you can do. So I mean, obviously a lot of this depends on Auburn and, and what it's able to do against Alabama, what it's able to do against Georgia. And if it doesn't look like it belongs in the same field as either of them, that's only going to add to the argument. So while I'm not you know, saying that Gus Malzahn is coaching for his job anytime soon, I, I do still think that, you know, there are, there, that the doubters are going to continue to grow, and especially if they don't look good in those games and they don't look like they're, they're anywhere near competing with those two teams, which are clearly the class of the SEC right now. The, the Florida State alum in me feels the need to say national championship appearance in 2013 for Auburn. Right. We remember how that game actually shook out. Uh, let's finish up the Auburn block here talking about Jared Stidham, who we have mentioned ad nauseum here. But what do we make of his performance? This is a guy who the previous three or four games was positively red hot. I mean, he hadn't thrown an interception since the Mercer game back in week three. You're talking about 32 of 37 and then 13 of 17 and then 13 of 16 and then 14 of 21. This guy was razor sharp and delivering the ball downfield as well, which this passing attack hadn't seen in years. All of a sudden, 9 out of 26. Granted, he wasn't picked, but this is not an LSU secondary you would say was suffocating. The pass rush has been good, not great. If, when you relook at this game, where do you think those struggles came from? How much was it was his right arm? How much of it is the receiving cord not having an alpha dog he can rely on? How much does it just poor play calling trying to nurse a lead? I think it's all of that. I mean, really, we just got, you just kind of hit it on a, a lot of the issues that this Auburn passing game is having. And, you know, I, I do think LSU's pass rush came, came ready to go in, in the second half. And I do think that they were able to get maybe more pressure on him than he was comfortable with. And, you know, to the point that I brought up in the preseason, I keep coming back to this with, when it comes to Sidham because I think that one of the things that, we've, that many people overlooked when they sort of threw him in that preseason Heisman conversation was we need to see how he handles an SEC pass rush. When teams are actually able to get pressure on him and there are hands in his face when he's throwing, how is he going to react? A guy who isn't necessarily that mobile the way that Gus Malzahn is used to how is he going to handle these situations? And to this point, he struggled with it. And I thought Mississippi State was going to give him a really good test because I think that defensive line is for real. But he actually handled that pretty well. Still, you know, you're looking at big-time games against Missouri, Ole Miss. Neither of those teams can tackle to save their lives, and they don't have anything going in the pass rush. You're looking at wins against Mercer and against Georgia Southern. In the games that have mattered and really meant something to this program so far, I mean, he's completed 44% of his passes. That, that's unacceptable. And part of that is on him. Part of that is on the coaching staff. And we hear, you know, the report comes out where he doesn't have the, avail- he doesn't have the freedom to audible at the line of scrimmage. You know, that's, that's a problem, too, in my opinion. If you're still not really uh, ready to take off the training wheels with him and you're still worried about the game plan uh, potentially running through him, I, I just worry about, you know, what they're going to be able to do with him in these big-time games what it's going to look like when they see Georgia's defensive line, when they see Alabama's defensive line. 
they're going to get after him. And it's, it, I, I mean, based on what we've seen so far, I, I can't forecast anything other than it looking ugly. I mean, how can you sit there and have confidence with what he's been able to do when in the two games that they've needed him most to have these big-time completions in the second half, it just hasn't looked very good. Yeah, that was an unexpected piece of news for me this week when we find out that Jared Stidham does not have control at the line of scrimmage to potentially change a play. I don't know if that's a comment on him or maybe the control freakness of his coaching staff. Yeah, that was a little bit surprising for a guy who has a reputation for being a cerebral kid to go along with that right arm. Uh, The Saturday Down South podcast is brought to you by Ticket City. There are some fantastic matchups in the SEC for Week 8, like Tennessee, Alabama, and Kentucky, Mississippi State, LSU, Ole Miss, and Auburn, Arkansas. Now is the time to get your tickets. We've been working with Ticket City for quite some time. They are the experts in the field, having served over a million and a half customers. They've been the place to go for tickets for over 30 years now. And best of all, they're taking care of our podcast listeners this season. Just visit TicketCity.com and enter the discount code SDS20, and you're going to get 20 bucks off the game of your choice. Again, that's TicketCity.com, discount code SDS20. Get off the couch, go to the game, it's football season. Visit TicketCity.com today. Okay, Connor, let's look back on another very interesting game from this past Saturday, Week 7. Texas A&M on the road at Florida. A couple of teams that have been very difficult to gauge. Are they good? Are they not so good? Are they contenders? Are they not? What's going on with the coaches? What's going on with the quarterbacks? I think it was it kind of lived up to expectations in terms of being close and defensive-minded, some struggling offenses, still looking for an identity. But Florida could not make any plays offensively down the stretch. Just one probably could have won that game. And here come the Aggies, who... This is a guy who was supposed to be on the hot seat in Kevin Sumlin and a true freshman quarterback and Kellen Mond that shouldn't even be on the field right now. But the Aggies found a way to win that game in a hostile environment with a depleted roster. I was impressed with what the Aggies pulled off and for the furthest thing from impressed what I saw from the Gators once again. Yeah, I said coming into the week that Texas A&M has impressed me. They, I mean, absolutely the way that they've responded since that complete collapse against UCLA in the opener. I mean, talk about a team that had had everybody and, and their mother thinking that they, that team was destined for six, seven wins and just in all sorts of, uh, of trouble moving forward. And, you know, you have to like the way that they've been able to respond. Um, you know, Kellen Mund has, has played better than I thought he would. I thought he was going to be overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, passing-wise, he still has a long way to go. I mean, he struggled. Uh, completing passes and, and really getting the intermediate passing game going. But uh, you're looking at a team right now that's just kind of finding a way. And they, they found a way to, to hang around against Alabama, which nobody else has been able to do to this point. And to, to go into the swamp and, and win, yes, Florida's offense has been a disaster. But still, to win a game in a hostile environment like that, I, I, I'm impressed with the, what the Aggies are doing. I, I, I you know, said coming into the week that I thought Kevin Sumlin was sort of uh, cooling his seat a bit with the the recent performance of his team, and you know they they just keep fighting, they keep finding a way, and you know you have to credit a team for for being willing to do that. Do they have the upside to stay in the division race? Not necessarily, in my opinion, but you know they they've they've been able to, to kind of hold on and piece some things together and get some big time plays in special teams. So, I mean. Credit the Aggies for doing what few teams have been able to do. Yeah, they don't call it the game's most important position for nothing. So let's review what's going on with Kellen Mond at Texas A&M and Felipe Franks at Florida. A couple of freshman passers. But keep in mind, Franks is a redshirt freshman. He has an extra 12 months in the system compared to Mond. But when I watch these two young men play, Kellen Mond, I see improvement. I see a kid with upside. I see somebody who I can, I can envision him being a solid quarterback in this league and getting more comfortable with this system, a better passer. The numbers, yeah, they're not very good. He was 8 out of 24 against Florida. He did find some big plays, 180 yards. He did not find the end zone. He was picked off once. But 
I see a kid with some moxie, and he doesn't mind taking a hit when he has to keep the ball on a read option. He did run for 52 yards and a touchdown. He had a run as long as 18, very fleet of foot and effective, and he seems to be growing with some confidence. I see the exact opposite with Felipe Franks. He's been in this offense for six games now, and I don't see any improvement. He's thrown three touchdown passes in six games. Three. You know, Tua Tagovailoa has four in relief for Alabama. That's how impotent this offense has been throwing the ball. And another thing, Florida's defense has been pretty good for the most part. The running game is getting better week after week. You're at home against an opponent that's average at best in this conference. You run for 242 yards. The opposing quarterback is 8 out of 24. The opposing running game posts only 83 yards on 38 carries. How in the Sam Hill do you not win that game? So Felipe Franks, his offense is running it okay. His defense is giving him a shot and keeping him in games. He's not improving. That's the difference I see. I see upside from Mond right now. I think Franks is who he is, and that's bad news in Gainesville. I agree with that. I, you know, I was ready to to kind of buy into Franks after I thought you know he throws the hail mary pass against Tennessee, and I thought that was going to be big for his confidence. But he just still doesn't look confident. Maybe part of this is the way that Jim McElwain handled this in the beginning of the season with basically saying, if you have a bad series, I'm going to pull you. You know, we saw that against Michigan. He fumbles the ball. He gets pulled for the rest of the game. You know, he gets pulled against Kentucky. Like, he, he's just not – he wasn't given the, the free reign of the offense maybe that, that he needed to kind of get his feet settled. And I don't know if that has a lot to do with it. And I'm not saying that that's an excuse for, for poor quarterback play. I think at this point, you know, in week seven, you should be ready to go when, when your time comes. But, you know, the coaching staff, I think, has something to do with that and something to do with his comfortability in the offense, whereas Kellen Mund has just been given the keys to the car to say, hey, we got these weapons, you've got Christian Kirk, you've got Travion Williams, go do with them what, what you can and, and make some plays out there for us. We're going to give you the ability to make plays with your legs. We're not going to sit there and, you know, tell you that you need to stay in the pocket and we're, not, we're going to allow you to roll out, we're going to allow you to do some different things. And I think he's kind of taken that, you know, and, and run with it, you know, for for lack of a better way to phrase it. I see Mund as a guy that he, he's keeping his he's keeping his eyes downfield too, which I don't know if a lot of young quarterbacks really do that effectively. But I think once that once that passing accuracy improves, I think that's going to help him greatly. And I do see the upside there. I mean, he's able to make plays uh, that not a lot of guys can. And right now, that's a that's a huge asset that Kevin Sumlin has in his offense. And it gives, you know, we talked before with Auburn about the, the predictability of the offense. Texas A&M sort of looks a little bit unpredictable on offense with what they're able to do. So, I mean, they can take those third and 15 plays and, and Mon can scramble and, and get a first down out of that. And I think that uh, right now Texas A&M is just kind of playing at a different level than maybe we thought they were going to in Florida. I mean, the regression that, we, that many expected, it, it has absolutely happened. Now, you can't measure all these quarterbacks in a vacuum. I understand that. Texas A&M has a much more quarterback-friendly offense with Kevin Sumlin. And Kellamon has a couple of solid tailbacks behind him and Travion Williams and Keith Ford. He also has Christian Kirk, who might be the best receiver in the country, a sensational return man as well. So he's got some weapons. He's got a nice scheme that can play to his abilities. It's hard to say that about Florida right now. This isn't a super quarterback-friendly offense. It's a little more pro-style. It's not just plug-and-play, and they've had issues there. They've really had issues there. You talk about the playbook. Maybe it's a little narrow. I know that Franks had that 79-yard stumbling and bumbling run, but that was clearly a fluke. He's not really a great athlete considering the size and skills that he has at his disposal. The receiving core has been positively decimated. You don't have Antonio Callaway at all because he's a flat-out knucklehead and you'll never see him in orange and blue again. Now you take away Tyree Cleveland, which is really his only option outside of Callaway. So, you know, you got DeAndre Goolsby at tight end, okay. Brandon Powell at receiver, okay. Kadarius Toney is your Swiss Army knife playmaker. He wasn't available. So, sure, it was a very short deck for Felipe Franks in that game. But I just don't see any improvement. And for the Gators fans out there who want to say, well, he doesn't have the experience and he's young and he's going to grow into it. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Just look around the country. There's way too many freshman quarterbacks and fairly inexperienced quarterbacks who have immediate success. Just look in the SEC. The top rated passer right now is Jake Fromm. True freshman right out of high school. Number two is Shea Patterson. 
who's a sophomore. And last year, he only played three games. He's been on campus in Oxford just as long as Felipe Franks has been on campus in Gainesville. So this whole argument about how he's young, he was redshirted, he's inexperienced, it's tough to make that argument because of how the game is played these years. This isn't like it was 20 years ago where a quarterback is on campus three years for a redshirt, two backup years, and then finally he starts as a redshirt junior. It doesn't work that way anymore. When you're on the field, you're expected to produce, and Felipe Franks is not producing, which is why I think that I think the cat the die has been cast for him. He is who he is, and come next year, Florida is going to need another quarterback. I don't think another year in the system is going to make this kid any better. Yeah, I'm not willing to necessarily write off Franks just yet, but at the same time, you're right. There's no excuse for a quarterback at this stage of the season to still be struggling like that. I don't buy it. I hate the the youth excuse. It's crutch. In today's college football, it, it should not be used at all. If any fans are, are using that to – to justify poor play, they're, they're simply mistaking and they're putting their blinders on. I mean, she got beat by a true freshman quarterback. I mean, that, that, that pretty much says it all. So, I, you know, I, I do think that he can still improve in this offense. That's not to say that it's going to happen because I'm not, I'm not convinced scheme-wise they're, they're, they're using his strengths to the best of his ability. I, think, I do think he needs to roll out a bit more, and I do think he needs to be able to make plays outside of the pocket and I think they need to utilize play action better because they have been able to establish a running game, but they just can't have they, they just can't have these these weeks where you know they have virtually no passing game. It's just not going to work. I mean, you know, I, I brought up the stat a few weeks ago to, to Jim McElwain on the SEC coaches teleconference that his team was his team was nine and one in one possession games since he took over at Florida, and he was like. Wow, really? Yeah, and since you've made that comment, he's 0-2. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, and I, I pose the question, you know, is Florida just been lucky or good? Because you can't expect that to continue. And at some point, your quarterback is going to need to make these big-time late drives, and you're going to have to piece some, some things together. Yeah, he was able to do that against Tennessee, but if you're asking for a guy to do that week in, week out, it's simply not going to work if you don't have a passing game that can march the ball downfield and operate a two-minute drill. And I think we're seeing right now Florida is struggling with that mightily. And this offense is it has all the issues that we thought that they were going to have this year. Um, it's a troubling sign. It's a troubling sign when Florida loses back-to-back games in the Swamp. I thought the schedule lined up pretty well for them. And right now uh, they're, they're sort of a mess, and I, I can't picture a scenario where they stay on the same field as Georgia. Well, imagine this. Uh, both teams are on a bye in week eight, I believe. And then week nine, you have the world's largest outdoor cocktail party at Everbank Field in Jacksonville. I went to high school not too far away, so I understand the importance and significance of that game. But Georgia's already 4-0 in conference play, and Florida just fell from 3-0 to 3-2. and I don't know if you realize this, Connor, but if Georgia wins against Florida, and everyone assumes that's going to happen, the Gators will be eliminated from the East race, eliminated before Halloween, the two-time defending champ of the East will be completely out of the race before the calendar even flips in November. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, and I think everybody was kind of talking about that as the make-or-break game for the season. I'm thinking to myself, I, I don't think Florida's getting to that point with only one loss, and it's as make-or-break as many, many think it is. The team that, that might actually have the best chance to like hang around in this division race is, is your Kentucky Wildcats. Correct. Yes, you, you, the team that you bought a few weeks ago is is hanging around, and you know they. I know they had a bye week, but you know they still got that game against Georgia. And while I don't see them staying on the field with with the Bulldogs either, you know this is a, a team that, to its credit, only has one loss at the midway point of the season, and that's a whole lot more than Florida can say. So let's go back to the quarterbacks real quickly as we wrap up Texas A and M, Florida. What do you do if you're these head coaches with these players right now? Kellen Mond, we think he's getting better. True freshman, very highly rated out of high school. We see the upside there. He seems like an A&M type of quarterback to be a dual threat. But Nick Starkle, who we thought was out for the year after the injury he sustained week one at UCLA, he had some shoulder pads on this past Saturday in Gainesville. It looks like he's going to be ready to play. This is a guy who won the job in fall camp. Do you give him a chance to get back on the field or is Mond your guy? You have to move with him going forward. No, Mond is Mond is my guy. I, I'm I'm sticking with him. I'm trusting the 
the unpredictability he gives the offense. I think the offense has just been moving much better, especially since he made those adjustments back in week two, I believe it was. Uh, this is an, an Aggies offense that has weapons, and I think that Mond is becoming another one of those weapons. I, I, I stick with him if I'm Kevin someone right now. As for Florida, I mean, it's just another mess there. Uh, Felipe Franks, are you buying this guy for the long term? Do you roll it out with him as long as you can? Is he your guy? No question going into next season. Luke Del Rio has another year of eligibility, by the way. He could come back and play. He can do some things and has some ability in that offense that maybe Felipe Franks doesn't. The Malik Zaire situation, clearly Coach Mack didn't get the guy from Notre Dame. He thought he was getting. I don't think he's going to see a significant snap the rest of the way. But you know what? You got a really good quarterback coming in. Matt Corral, a kid from California. He committed to Florida a while back. He's the number five quarterback in the country. Four stars on the precipice of a fifth. You know, the way things have gone for Florida at quarterback, losing Will Greer and seeing him light it up with the Mountaineers right now, are you more willing to give Franks more time and be your starter in 2018 or is the chatter for a young kid like Corral to be maybe the next true freshman, maybe the next Jake Fromm, maybe the next Jalen Hurts, who just takes the job right away and does things that everybody before him couldn't? I can't make that distinction right now. I can't sit here and say that Felipe Franks deserves to be the 2018 starter. Um, what's, what's going to happen is, I, I think it's pretty obvious at this point, we're going to have another three-way quarterback battle and McIlwain is going to, you know, insist on on everybody, you know, competing for the job, and we're not going to hear about a starter until the season opener, and it's going to be this big, drawn-out storyline, but it's still going to be the same question over and over is, does it actually matter? Is any quarterback going to be able to succeed at Florida? Will it matter if it's a freshman? Will it matter if it's a senior? Who's going to be able, who's going to, be able to like, actually win this job, hold on to it, and, and put up some points? I think that we're still going to be having this conversation, much like we had this preseason, about a three-headed quarterback battle and not really having a whole lot of confidence that it's going to make a difference. That, that would be my prediction at this point. You know, it might even be four-way. A name that we don't bring up very often is Jake Allen. He was a part of the recruiting class this past February. Granted, a three-star kid, number 33 quarterback in the country, but he's from St. Thomas Aquinas. I've heard some very good things about him. I know he took Aquinas very deep in the state playoffs. He beat Plant High School, which is right in my backyard, 8A in the state of Florida. That's saying something. We know St. Thomas Aquinas is an absolute factory, but Allen seems to be in the situation this year that Felipe Franks and Kyle Trask were in last year, where no matter how bad it gets for Coach Mack, that redshirt is staying on. He's not going to put him out there to the fire right away. As we've seen with Florida, it doesn't matter how many stars you have at the quarterback position. I don't think McIlwain cares a lick about a three-star or five-star at this point. He just needs somebody in there that can run the offense and you know, give him some long-term job security. I think more than anything right now, you point at that position and the, the issues that they've had, and that's what people keep coming back to with McIlwain and whether or not he's going to be the answer at Florida. If they can solidify that quarterback position, I think a lot of those concerns go away. Here's another thing that Coach Mack doesn't care a lick about, and it's the Gator Nation. When it comes to the booster clubs and the people with the deep pockets, he does not have a great relationship with those types, and that can be testy at a program like Florida. He's not one of these guys who's great on the – on the booster club circuit and knows who to, you know, whose hands to shake and and the the slaps on the back and, you know, and, and sort of getting influence and Hey, what, what about this five-star kid? Or, you know, maybe you should get this guy a little more playing time. Mac doesn't hear those things and he doesn't care about those things. And on the one hand, you have to commend him for that. He's trying to get outside influence away from his locker room and that's fine. He's the head coach, but you know what? That is a game you sometimes have to play at a big time program. And I think that's one of the reasons why that program really hasn't embraced him, even though he's gotten to Atlanta each of his first two seasons and won a bunch of big ball games. You know what? There's not a lot of love there for him locally, and part of it is the attitude he has with the big people who matter in Gainesville. So it's a double-edged sword there. It's a game you have to play sometimes, and he really hasn't enjoyed playing it. And I think that's why that program, uh, the people who support that program, you know what? They might cut bait a little quicker then they might say with a Brett Bielema at Arkansas because you have those booster types who root for this guy. They like this guy. They've had lunch with this guy. So they root for him. And, and Mac doesn't have that right now. Cut bait. I see what you did there. That was nice. Way to bring it all back. Wasn't it? 
That was, that was good. You, you did that on purpose, didn't you? <laughs> Maybe I did. So <laughs> enough looking back. Let's look ahead. If we have to, poor Rocky Top, we have to look ahead to Tennessee, Alabama at Bryant-Denny Stadium. And you talk about two programs that could be not going more viciously in opposite directions. But Alabama looks as dominant as ever in the SEC, coming off a 4-0 start in the conference more dominant than Nick Saban has ever been, which is incredible for a guy who's won four national championships in a decade's time. But the Crimson Tide just look on an absolute warpath and unbeatable, as opposed to Tennessee, haven't scored a touchdown in 10 quarters. By the way, all 10 of those quarters are at home. It's a dumpster fire with Butch Jones. Some people are wondering how he's still collecting a paycheck. Is this thing going to be as bad as it gets? I mean, I know the spread started at about 30. It's already been bet up the 35 or so, this feels like a 48-3 to game to me. Is there any prayer, any prayer at all for the Vols to come out there and play inspired football and maybe hold this thing to 30-20 to or something like that? Here's the only prayer. Rat poison. That's it. That's the <laughs> only thing that can save Tennessee is that Alabama spends all week reading about how much they're going to beat Tennessee by and they don't come ready to play. And for whatever reason, the Vols just play out of their minds for the first half, keep the game a little bit close. Saban goes into the locker room and screams at his team, why in the world are we only up 21 points? You know, with a few expletives laced in there. Um, And Alabama runs away with it in the second half. That is the only prayer, in my opinion, that Tennessee has to to keep it close. Otherwise, I mean, goodness gracious, how in the world is Tennessee going to march down the field and score I mean, John Kelly can only do so much. He can only break so many tackles. I, I, I just have no idea how in the world the Vols are going to be able to sustain any sort of scoring drives against an Alabama defense that has been pretty much lights out all year. So just to be clear here, just to be clear, you mean rat poison in the figurative sense, not the literal sense? Figurative sense. Okay. The literal sense might be their only shot, but we're certainly not going to go there on this podcast. But, yeah, I'm with you. I mean – this is a Tennessee offense that is an absolute mess right now. The change in quarterback did no good whatsoever. Might even have done more harm than good. I'm not here to tell you that Quentin Dormady is a good quarterback. He's pretty average, to say the least. But I saw very little from Jared Garantano. Lots of people trying to tell me he's a four-star kid with all kinds of upside and he can be the next Josh Dobbs, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? I didn't see it. I saw a kid who... Yeah, he's got a little shake and bake here and there, but he's not particularly decisive with the football. He's not particularly decisive with his legs when it comes time to tuck it and run. Very limited playbook, which tells me he doesn't have a full grasp from cover to cover. I think he only threw about 10 passes in the game. That doesn't tell me there's a lot of confidence on that sideline right now in Garantano. And John Kelly, fantastic player. He can run it. He can catch it. But if there's a defense that can single-handedly eliminate a running game, it's the one in crimson and white. Alabama is number one in the country right now in rushing defense. Surprise, surprise. This would be three years in a row and five out of seven where they might finish number one in the country in rush defense. So you're looking at a box score at the end of this game that might be, you know, 20 carries for 25 yards for Tennessee's entire offense, which means you got to throw the ball and make some plays in the passing game. I don't see it from Garantano. I don't see it from this receiving core. I don't see how the offensive line is going to hold up against a front seven that has only gotten better rushing the passer the last couple weeks. This has bloodbath written all over it, and we all know that Nick Saban doesn't have a merciful bone in his body. It's going to be ugly. I I just don't see any way around it. I mean, how how in the world is Tennessee going to all of a sudden get things going in Tuscaloosa? I just... I have no idea. I can't fi- picture a scenario that they even get to 14 points. I mean, do you hope that you get a special teams touchdown? Do you hope that for whatever reason, like a receiver falls down and you get a pick six against Jalen Hurts? Like, I just don't know. I mean, this, this offense has just been a complete and total train wreck. It's been that way all year. Um, even going back to the Georgia Tech game, I know they came back in that one, but you know, pretty much ever since then, it's been you know just nonstop frustration, no passing game whatsoever. Um, I don't know. I mean, are are we going to see Tennessee get to like four first downs? I mean, are we? Is this going to be one of those games where we look, where we look at the box score and Tennessee is basically just you know a, a, I don't know a South Alabama or something like that? Like, 
is it going to be that kind of blowout where we're looking at Tennessee and we're just basically treating them like they're a group of five schools? Does it, that's kind of how it feels like to me, at least. So, well, if, if we're talking about Tennessee that way, then let's just go ahead and steer the conversation this direction. A lot of people are wondering why Butch Jones is still employed. I'm not really one of them. I'm not a big believer in the interim coach, but there's plenty of people wondering, why not go ahead and get rid of this guy? There's so much negativity. The coaching staff isn't very well put together. We hear stories about fights in the locker room and on the practice field. You're losing commitments to some degree. I know the class as a whole is still very good right now, but how long are you going to be able to hold that sucker together with duct tape and bubble gum? Why not go ahead and cut right now and just get rid of Butch Jones, get him out of there, Elevate Bob Shoup, elevate Larry Scott, elevate Brady Hoke, have somebody come in there and be an interim coach and then try to make a splash. I don't necessarily like that argument, but a lot of people are trying to make it. What's your thought on the whole idea of do you get rid of him now or do you get rid of him later? Because clearly Rocky Top is going to get rid of him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty inevitable at this point. Um I, I saw this, I didn't really see, okay, so a lot of people, and I talked to Jason Swain last week, who, you know, is very connected into the Tennessee, uh, you know, the Tennessee world, and he understands kind of, you know, the, the, all the, the news and noise that comes out of Knoxville, and he thought that Butch Jones was coaching for his job last week. I mean, he thought it was win or go home for him, and that didn't prove to be the case. How much does Alabama have to do with that? Is, is it, are we looking at a scenario in which, they, they just don't want to get embarrassed even more against Alabama. Are they really holding on to Butch because they fear the alternative, which is, okay, let's say they let go of Butch and everybody is, you know, scrambling during the Alabama week and they look like a complete and total nightmare, even more so than what they would look like with Butch Jones? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think that you can base um, his future on Alabama, and I think that goes both ways. I think even if somehow Tennessee keeps this close or even – pulls off the unthinkable, which I see no way in the world it happens. But let's say Tennessee provides the most stunning upset in you know, recent college football memory and wins this game in Alabama. I still don't even think that that should be enough to save Butch Jones' job. I don't, I don't think that's enough to change the opinions of, of the powers that be. They still have three losses in SEC play. They're still not going to be competing for, uh, for a division title and for a conference title this year. So I, I have been looking at that Kentucky, that Kentucky game as the one that's ultimately going to um, end his time in Knoxville. I see them losing at Alabama this week. I see them losing at Kentucky the week after and then making a move before the homecoming game against Southern Mississippi, uh, a game that you can't afford to have boosters, you know, not showing up and, you know, a half-empty Neyland Stadium I think would be a really bad look on everyone. I I think that is when Tennessee ultimately pulls the trigger on Butch Jones. So you're telling me that an interim coach is going to fill the stadium on homecoming? I think that ship has sailed. I mean, who are you going to get as your interim coach? You could bring in Philip Fulmer. You can bring back Johnny Majors. You could have a, a, a tri-coaching situation with Fulmer, Majors, and, and bring back the ghost of General Nealon while you're at it. Nobody's going to go into Tuscaloosa and make this game competitive. And the roster is what it is right now. The schemes are what they are right now. Making the change is not going to... Give everybody, a, I know there's going to be a sense of relief where you can say, okay, at least we've closed that chapter. Let's find somebody else. But I just don't see why you make the change now. I think the best plan is to grin and bear it for another six weeks. And after Thanksgiving weekend, no matter what happens with the Vanderbilt game, you get rid of Butch Jones then. And then when the regular season is over, that's an opportunity to engage in some talks and maybe throw some money at a big, sexy hire. And if you have a small window of, say, two or three days between getting rid of Coach Jones and then, bam, you, you, you manage to hire, let's just say, Justin Fuente to throw a name out there. Do I think that's going to happen? No. But let's just say you can pull that off. Now you can go to your 2018 commitments in your recruiting class and say, look, I know you were committed to Coach Jones, but you were coming to Tennessee. You weren't coming to play for that guy. You're coming to play in this stadium, in Knoxville, in this program, and now we got a better coach. You're going to love this guy. Let's keep that commitment. Let's sign on National Signing Day. Because let's not forget, even with everything going on right now, Tennessee has the number six recruiting class in the country as currently projected at 247 Sports. That's higher than anybody else in the SEC. Yes, it's early. But the new early signing period in December is not that far away. If you get rid of Coach Jones now, 
and you have a six-week window where it's nebulous and you can't hire somebody because everybody else is in the middle of their season. You're not going to yank John Gruden out of the Monday night football booth in the middle of October. That's just too big of a window where these recruits have no idea who the hell they're going to play for. So just grin and bear it for six weeks, shorten that window from the ex-coach to the new coach. Maybe you can keep that recruiting class together because the roster is okay. Clearly it's not enough to go where you want to go, but it's a heck of a lot better than it was three or four years ago when Coach Jones just got going there in Knoxville. Okay, so we're sitting here and we're talking about all this stuff. And we're talking about Butch Jones' job security, and every week it's new reports about whether or not he's going to be fired if he wins this game, or if he loses this game, or loses that game. Do you think recruits are sitting there thinking that, oh yeah, I'm committed to Butch Jones just because he's in place, he's in place right now, that I'm absolutely going to play for Butch Jones, and this is, everything is totally fine. I don't think any recruit is under that impression right now, and I, I can't, I don't want to necessarily speak on behalf of all of them. I don't know what's going through an 18-year-old's mind will we'll get far away from that but I think every single kid in that recruiting class knows that there's a very very good possibility that Butch Jones is gone for the rest of the season and I think every single kid that is being recruited by other schools that is currently committed to Tennessee is is using that in negative recruiting how could you not I mean if you're Alabama and you want a Tennessee recruit all you have to do is say hey Butch Jones look at look at his situation right now look at all the support that he's getting I mean, it's not there. You're not going to be able to play for Butch Jones. Anybody that can make that argument now is going to be able to make the same one in six weeks, in my opinion. So while, yes, you're right in that it would be great to theoretically close the window, have maybe only two, three days of sort of that instability, there's instability right now. And I think anybody that's looking to make a move or is wishy-washy is aware of that in the recruiting game. And I think that this can absolutely be used against Tennessee as long as it's uncertain. I don't think the Vols are, are anywhere near um, sort of quieting those waters. They're not in any situation like what Texas A&M is with, with Kevin Sumlin, where he's won a few games, and that's an easier argument to make. Um, I just don't see this as a, a, as a scenario that's maybe as cut and dry as, oh, the coach is on board, so we're definitely committed. Oh, he's not on board. We're not committed anymore. Do you, know, do you get what I'm saying? I do get what you're saying, and that's absolutely a fair point. But again, the question we always have to ask that not a lot of people have a great answer to is, okay, you're getting rid of Butch Jones, who, by the way, everybody loved five years ago and thought he was one of the up-and-coming coaches in the country, what he did previously on his resume. Who are you going to get? And just how attractive is this job right now? And of course, all the Tennessee backers, all the GBO types are going to tell you, we're going to throw money at John Gruden, or maybe we'll bring over Justin Fuente from uh, across the border of Virginia Tech. And you know what? Let's go get Chip Kelly because he's out of the game and his offense makes sense for us. Or you know what? Dan Mullen. Let's finally pull him out of Starkville. We can give him a lot more resources than he'll ever have in Mississippi State. A, I don't see why anybody in those previous names that I mentioned would take this job. And B, how attractive is this job right now? I know Tennessee has a lot of money, very good facilities, 100,000-plus at Neyland Stadium. That being said, the Volunteer State is not a premier state from a recruiting perspective. You have to do well in the southeast. You have to do well in the mid-Atlantic and other places because you can't just stay home and get enough guys to compete. You have a crossover game with Alabama every single season. And so long as Nick Saban has a house in Tuscaloosa, that's going to be just a nightmare scenario. The, ten- the East is not great. You can supposedly compete there. Certainly easier than the West. But long-winded way of me saying, A, how great is this job right now from a perception standpoint? And B, who would say yes to this job? Who's an upgrade over the guy you had? Well, I think there are, there are upgrades for, for Tennessee. And I agree with you that some of the names that are being thrown around right now, you're just like, come on. Like, the John Gruden stuff needs to stop. I mean, the groomers are just out of control. I'm not a big believer that Chip Kelly is all of a sudden going to be the, the guy um, either. So, uh, you know, I think there are some up-and-coming coaches that that Tennessee could certainly target and potentially make a big-time offer to. I've been banging the drum for Scott Frost for a while, even though I've been mocked for that, uh, unfairly so in my opinion. But um, he's a guy that you could definitely pursue. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that there are – plenty of worthy candidates that just know how to win football games and right now that's what you're not doing i mean you're just not winning football games and you're getting embarrassed in the process so yeah while you might not be able to definitively say that somebody is absolutely better than than butch jones 
I mean, why not go after a Jeff Brom at Purdue, a guy that has turned around that program in a hurry? I mean, a, a program that was a complete dumpster fire and is playing completely different football at this point. Why not go after a guy like Greg Schiano, who has experience at a place like Rutgers, where it was a doormat, and all of a sudden he turned that program into something that was a whole lot more than a doormat for a few years there and has done really well as a defensive coordinator at Ohio State. Why not go after a guy like Dino Babers, who is taking down a team like Clemson in the last week and is hotter than anybody in the coaching game right now, strictly for his his post-game speeches, which were, I mean, that post-game speech was fantastic. But I'll get back to the point here. I, I just don't think that, you know, you can sit here and say that there's nobody better than Butch Jones. If you're getting beat this bad, there's got to be somebody better. Tennessee job is still going to be able to covet a few big-time up-and-coming coaches. I think that they can absolutely find somebody that's capable of doing this job. All right, last tree, uh, last part of the – what am I trying to say here? Last branch on the tree of this particular conversation, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Dan Mullen to Tennessee, your thoughts? I don't hate it. I mean, I, I, I've heard crazier things than that. You know, I, I think that's got a little bit more legitimacy to, to anything that I've heard about John Gruden. I mean, if he is – you never know. If, if a guy is getting that itch – um, I know that he has been extremely loyal to, to Mississippi State, but you just never know if that kind of opportunity is thrown out there and you know what kind of money that they're going to offer him because they would make a big, big-time financial commitment to bring a guy like him on board. I think his kind of offensive mind would certainly be appreciated in Knoxville after the year that's been um, so far. So I, I don't hate it. Do I see it happening? No, but I, I would absolutely not fault Tennessee for going after a guy like him. Of course you don't fault Tennessee. I think it would be a sensational hire if they pulled it off. But I'm here to shoot that down right now. It doesn't make any sense for Dan Mullen to take a job like that. Because look at where he is right now. This is year nine, by the way, for him at Mississippi State. When he got to that school, it was under 500 historically as a football program. It's now marginally over 500 due to what he's done. So you talk about perennial doormat. Mississippi State fits that bill before he got there. And this is a guy who's already being lauded as an offensive genius and a quarterback whisperer, et cetera, et cetera. Most of that is true. Look at what he did with Tim Tebow and with Dak Prescott and currently with Nick Fitzgerald, although there has been a bump or two in the road there. But why would he leave a place with expectations way down here and then go to a place with expectations way up here? I understand it's a podcast. You can't see my hand right now, but you get the point. At Mississippi State, you know what? You make a run every now and then to nine wins. I mean, you're a Magnolia State hero. If you have an in-between year where you only win six or seven and you go to some St. Petersburg Bowl and play Miami of Ohio, you're going to get a get-out-of-jail-free card just about every year. Why? Because you're Mississippi State and you can't recruit like the rest of the West. The expectations are what they are there. By the way, he already makes $4.5 million dollars. Could Tennessee maybe throw $6 million at him? Sure, I suppose, but Mississippi State would probably match just about any offer he got. You figure they're not going to let that guy get away. But from an expectation standpoint, from a job security standpoint, and just a general stress standpoint, why would you leave a place like Mississippi State to go to a place like Tennessee? All you have to do is beat Ole Miss often enough in the Egg Bowl. If you knock off Auburn once every three years, you're a hero. If you knock off Alabama once every four or five, you're a god. If you make a great run, everyone celebrates you. If you only win six games, eh, you're Mississippi State. You'll get them next year. You go to Tennessee, ask Butch Jones. It doesn't work that way. I agree with you, and I'll add the one final point to that. Considering what Ole Miss is about to go through, there is a big-time chance for, for Dan Mullen to really, really take control of that of the Magnolia State and really kind of, you know, uh, cement his, his place in terms of uh, being the, you know, the power, the power team in that state. The, the opportunity is going to absolutely be there uh, with all, what Ole Miss is going to have to go through in the next few years. So I, I, I'll agree with you. I, I mean, I think, you know, just from, from all the points that you made, I, I'd, be surpri- I'd be very surprised if I saw it. The only thing that would that would ever, I think, spark a move like that would be if relationships had kind of faded there and there's maybe some stuff that we don't know, but no sign really points to Dan Mullen up and leaving anytime soon. Connor, good show. We'll do it again soon. Hey, sounds good. That's Connor O'Gara. Remember to follow him on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. You can also follow me at SaturdayJC. 
And thank you for listening to the Saturday Down South podcast. Special thanks to our friends right here in Tampa, WDAE, as well as our sponsors, Crystal and Ticket City. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever your favorite podcast can be found. Be sure to give the show a rating as well. My name is John Christ, and for all SEC all the time, visit SaturdayDownSouth.com.